the resurrection and this amazing, amazing hope that we have as Christians because of what Christ has done for us through His death and His resurrection. But before we do that, I would just like to make a couple of comments about Lent, alright? And I'd like to do that just out of something that happened in our life group this week. Uh, some, some people asked us and said, well, do we celebrate Lent? And uh, am I giving up anything for Lent? So I answered the question. I thought it might be, a, might be a good opportunity to share with you in terms of uh, what we uh, practice in this, in this church, alright? And uh, all of us as Christians are anticipating this amazing event of Easter and the, and the death and resurrection of Jesus and all that that means. Um, and part of the traditional calendar for people that uh, come from uh, traditions such as the Catholic Church or some, some uh, Protestant denominations also, they practice Lent, alright? Um, and I, I respect everyone's tradition and where you've come from and, and I, I think that's why it's appropriate that I just make a couple of comments about Lent. Um, and in this church we don't formally, um, we don't formally follow the calendar of Lent and um, I do want to just give you some background on why that is so. I don't know if you know this, but Lent actually um, was, was kind of formed by the 4th century when the Catholic Church said they were going to set aside 40 days. It's actually 46 days, but if you exclude the weekends, it's, it's 40 days. Uh, starting on a Wednesday, which they call Ash Wednesday, uh, and it finishes on Easter Sunday. And the idea was that the church would take time, uh, set time aside, fast from some things, do without some things in order to seek God and to repent of, of their sin and um, to focus their attention on Christ. That, that was the idea of, of Lent. That's actually how it uh, originated. And so people choose to do different things. They choose to eat sparingly or fast from certain things uh, or say, oh, I'm not going to watch television for the next 40 days or I'm not going to eat chocolate or whatever it is. Okay? And so it's supposed to do this, it's supposed to help us remind ourselves of our need of repentance and um, people that reference Old Testament uh, verses like Esther 4 or Jeremiah 6, Daniel 9, all of these things that call us to repentance and say, let's see God. However, over the centuries, particularly in some of the traditional churches, there's a, it's become more sacramental. And what I mean by that is this, is that particularly Catholics believe that if you give up something for Lent, somehow you achieve, uh, in, a, in a different way, you achieve God's blessing in your life. It's like a reward from God. If you give up something, there's this blessing that comes by the way of rewards. And so I would say to you, uh, in terms of our tradition, in terms of where we come from, that we would not hold to that. We would say quite simply that the blessing of God it cannot be earned in any way. It's by grace, through faith, and that's completely on, on the foundation on, on which we depend for everything. By grace, through faith. It's a gift of God to us that comes through Christ Jesus, a gift of righteousness. And that's Romans 5.17. I'd also tell you the fact of this, that uh, Jesus, when he, he was um, discussing these things with the Pharisees, which he did quite regularly, because they, they put more attention on the fasting than they did actually on the heart of why they were doing things. And Jesus kind of often rebuked them for that and said, well, uh, let me just point you to some things in your heart. 
And Jesus said things like this, uh, Matthew 6. Um, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. And I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it would not be obvious to anyone that you are fasting. But only to your Father who is in heaven, who sees what is unseen. Hear what I'm saying? And so Jesus says it's cool that you do want to fast, it's good that when you fast. But when you do fast, don't tell anyone, don't make a big show of it. Don't put ash on your face. And that's what they do traditionally on Ash Wednesday. Put ash on your face to show everyone that you're fasting. Well, Jesus says don't do things like that. Don't worry about that stuff. What's really important is between you and God. And if you do want to fast, do it in a way that no one else knows that you're fasting. Just you do it between you and God, and your Father in heaven will see. Alright? And so I think what I'm trying to say is that um, for me, when I look at the scripture, and Jesus says we should observe two things. We should be baptized, and we should celebrate the breaking of bread in remembrance of Him. He doesn't really say we should do any other things. I think it's good to, to fast, and certainly when we set time aside to, um, to reflect on God and who He is, that, that, that's a wonderful thing. Absolutely nothing wrong with that in, in, in the setting time aside. However, I do want to say that I think repentance is a daily thing. We should be learning to practice that in our lives every moment of every day, not just in a certain period of calendar. And I, I think Jesus would want us to be daily learning kindness and practicing forgiveness and learning to walk with Him by His Spirit day by day, rather than giving up chocolate for 40 days. Amen. Put it to you, that's the heart of it. Part of it is, do I want to know Jesus? It is about my whole life, rather than just, oh, well, I'm going to give up ice cream. And some of that's going to be most famous because I give up ice cream. And then people can ask me what I'm doing, and I say, I've given up ice cream for 40 days. Okay? Let's practice forgiveness and kindness and learn to walk by the Spirit day by day by day. And so I will conclude by saying this if you want to observe that, that's absolutely, uh, I've got no problem with that. As a church, we don't ask that of people. Uh, we, we, if you want to set time aside to see God, I want to encourage you to do that in a wonderful way that's right for you. But I also want to encourage you not to let it be flippant. Don't let it be a flippant thing. If you are going to set time aside to see God, then see God with all of your heart. Yeah? And I've, I've put it to you that chocolate and uh, ice cream is really not what it's about. But seeking Him. So if you want to do that, go for it, and I, I, will, I will bless that. Um, but I want to put it to you that God loves you just as you are right now. He can never love you anymore. And whether you fast or whether you don't fast, His love for you does not increase and decrease according to your fasting practice. His love for you is constant all the time. He loves you as a son, as a daughter, perfectly right now, just as you are. Amen. God bless you. I hope you saw want to be my friend, alright? <laughs> so after all of this, I want, to, I want to point you for the next four weeks to the absolute joy and hope that we have in anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. Right? And um, it truly is, as, as Tim said in, in, the, in the worship this morning, it 
truly is the, is the hope that we have. It's the great, the great anticipation of our hearts that death is not the end, but there's something greater than all of creation is longing for that is coming. And uh, we are anticipating that here on earth right now. And the re re resurrection power of Christ in our lives is anticipating the fullness of what is to come. And we live for that day with joy in our hearts. Knowing that when we say goodbye to people like we did to a number of people this last year, it's not in a way that we will never see them again, but it's the way that we will one day see them face to face in the presence of Jesus. And we look forward to that day. This is a glorious thing. And the hope that we have doesn't just end in this kind of cloud thing that happens in the sky where we wonder, uh, as the poet put it, uh, what, like, you know, what he said, this is like clouds in the sky. We, that's not what it's about. It's about a new heaven and a new earth that Jesus will come back and all of those that are in Christ will rise from the dead and we will reign and rule with Him in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what we believe as Christians. That is the hope of our Christian faith. And so what I'd like to do this morning with you is... Um, is I'm going to be looking particularly at, in the weeks ahead, at Matthew's Gospel, just because I've been studying Matthew's Gospel myself, and so I've chosen some examples from that. But what I'd like to do this morning is just give you a very brief overview of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and how, in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament uh, 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 looks at death and resurrection, and then also how resurrection has, is anticipated in the New Testament in some ways, alright? And so the first thing that I'd like to say is simply this. When you read the Old Testament, you definitely get this impression that death is a one-way trip. Alright? It's a one-way trip. You don't come back from death. Alright? There was an expectation in the Old Testament that you came back from death. And I put it to you if you have a look at some of these examples. David, you know, has an affair with Bathsheba, and the result of their affair is a child that she bears for David. And it says, I'll just put up a section of the story that I'm going to read a little bit more this morning. Starting in 2 Samuel 12 verse 16, it says this, The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became sick, and therefore David sought God on his behalf. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, and he didn't eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, when the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, he understood that the child was dead, and he said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went to the house of the Lord and he worshipped. And they went to his own house. And when they asked him, he said food before that they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and went for the child while he was alive, and now that he's dead, you arose and you ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows when the Lord will be gracious to me? that the child might live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will never return to me. And so there's this kind of picture with David saying, oh, this, this is a one-way ticket. My child is gone. He's never going back. That's the kind of what he's saying. And I uh, point you to some other scriptures. Psalm 89. 
And I'll, I'll send these on to you um, by email this week, and perhaps in, uh, in your devotions, perhaps you can begin to reflect a little bit on the resurrection, what it means, what it means to you, might affect you. And we're going to talk about these things as we, uh, as we go further. Uh, why have I got Joe there? Oh, I left one out. Alright, sorry about that. Uh, but uh, Psalm 89 says, What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Sheol is another word for uh, the afterlife. Or Job 7, which I've got on the screen. Remember that my life is but a breath. My eye will never see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so is he who goes down to Sheol and does not come back up again. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him any longer. These are all just things pointing us to the fact that uh, in the Old Testament, death is seen as a one-way trip. Right? There's some others that are uh, Job 14 that you can have a look at, uh, but I won't uh, read that now. But at the same time, when I read the Old Testament, there, there, there's amazing um, indications, little hints that perhaps there's an ultimate victory of the God of life that is still coming. And the Old Testament also hints at that. And also there's some clear little stories that get us to think a little bit that actually God is doing something amazing in the universe and actually perhaps it's not the end. Alright? And this is a really cool thing. I don't know if you know this story. In 2 Kings 13, verse 20, there's the Elisha, who's the great prophet who follows on from Elijah, and he dies. And so they bury him. And it says here, Heaven may reference Gideon the other week when the Moabites would come and um, raid the Israelites and they were a place of fear. But it says here again, it's this, this picture of the Moabites raiding and invading and causing havoc with the Israelites. And it says, Bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of each year. And a man was being buried. And behold, this raiding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as his body touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. It's an incredible story. Incredible picture. The, the prophet is dead, his, his body's decayed, and all that is left of him are the bones. But there's something about the power of God that we must need to believe here in the story that is still in the bones of Elijah. And when this man who's, who's been buried falls on the, the bones of Elijah, he is resurrected. He comes to life. He's revived. Man, it's incredible. And he has a little hint for us that perhaps death is not the end when the power of God is at work. He has a little hint. We can, if we look carefully, we can see the hints in the scripture. If we look carefully, we'll find it. What about this one? Uh, I get excited. This is very exciting to me. Daniel. What about Daniel? And this is perhaps the most, uh, the clearest in the Old Testament, the clearest hint of the resurrection that we have. It's Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And it's, um, it's uh, prophetic language. Daniel is prophesying and he says, At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting content. And those that are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn, uh, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so this, like I said, is a very clear reference uh, to, to resurrection in the book of Daniel. And do you notice that little phrase, at that time? It's very important. 
there's this kind of stuff that begins to happen. There's a rattling as the bones come together and this mighty army is, comes to life and it's resurrected this picture, right? And so the basic um, context is that when that was first given, there was a picture of, of uh, what was happening for Israel as they were returning from exile. God was prophesying and saying, you dry bones get scattered, but I'm bringing together you as a nation together like a mighty army. And, and over a period of time, it also became a picture of literal resurrection that God wants to bring about for his people. So here we have some uh, Old Testament things for you to think about. I really would encourage you to do that this week. So now let's have some New Testament things, some right in the Gospels. And like I said to you, there are many references, but I'm going to mainly focus on Matthew, just because that's what I'm studying myself at the moment. So for example, uh, Jesus, some of Jesus' healings point to the resurrection. Do you remember this wonderful story of uh, Jairus' daughter? It's in Matthew uh, chapter 9. Um, and it says in verse 18, While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, the ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but you come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman came and was suffering from a discharge of blood for twelve years. And she came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. And she said to herself, if only I can touch him and touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, my daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. This is the interjection in the story of Jairus' daughter is another miraculous healing as the woman touches Jesus. And it says in verse 23, when Jesus came to the Ruth's house and he saw the food players and the crowd making a commotion. Why? Because they had professional mourners when someone died, so they would get these guys to come and sit and play and mourn and wail to let everybody know that there was a death in the household. So Jesus hears the commotion. And he says, go away. <laughs> all of you mourners, all of you making noise, go away. Please, go away. Why? For the girl is not dead. She is only sleeping. It's resurrection language. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And by my power, you're going to see that I am the resurrection and the life. And all I need to do is speak a word. And she who is asleep will be resurrected. No longer asleep. It is amazing. Come on. This is the hope that we have. That those that die in Christ are not dead. They are just asleep for a moment. I have a hope for my own mum. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And for Donna. We said goodbye to the church. She's not dead, she's only sleeping. We can't see her right now. She's rejoicing in God's presence. She is, I know she is. But to us, she's asleep, but she's not sleeping away. But we'll see her again. This is the great hope that we have. It's the great joy. She's not dead. And they laughed at him. Do you read the next verse? <laughs> they laughed. How many people, when you say this to, to them, don't they just laugh in your face? You don't know what you are talking about. You are mad. You Christians, you've got no concept of reality. They laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put aside, he went and took it by the hand. And she, listen to the language, and she arose. Even 
the language of the Gospels points to what Jesus is going to do. She arose, just like Jesus arose on the third day. And the report of this went through all of the districts. So, we have this amazing picture. What about, I said our children in the Gospel, what about John? John 11, 38, you know the story again, the miracle of, of, of Lazarus. Lazarus um, is a family friend of Jesus, and Mary and Martha are his sisters, as you know, and they come and say, you know, Lazarus is really ill, will you come? And Jesus says, I can't come right now, just wait. Isn't it sometimes like us with Jesus? Jesus, I need you right now! I'm desperate, I need you right now! And Jesus just says,
Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, they will condemn him to death, he will be delivered, be delivered over to death, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. All these little clues Jesus giving his disciples, giving us of the great thing that lies ahead, that he was going to do for them, and he was going to do for you and I, through his death and his resurrection. And then, I'm coming to the end now, and then we're going to pray prayers. Uh, doesn't just encourage you to read the stories. <coughs> that deeply encourages me as I was preparing this week. I said, Oh God, this is so wonderful. Your word, enriching me, encouraging me, refreshing me. This is what you have to do. This ultimately is the, the mission that you have. And so Jonah uh, is the sign that uh, Jesus says he's going to give those people that are looking for a sign. Um, Matthew 12. Uh, these guys asking Jesus to do another miracle, give us a sign, you know, perform something else for us. And they, will, they will believe that you are the Christ. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus is straight up. Uh, he, he, he is right in their faces. <laughs> He's saying, Are you so blind that you can't see who, who I am and the great thing? The only sign that you will have that I am who I say I am is that just like Jonah went to the belly of the world for three days and came out again, I will go into the belly of the earth and I will rise after three days. This will be a sign to you that I am who I say I am. Man, it's powerful. And then I want to point you to perhaps the least obvious parable, but for me the most powerful parable, that speaks about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it's the parable of the wicked tenants, Matthew 21. Do I have it up there? Matthew 21. Uh, this is Jesus again speaking to his followers and, and painting this picture for them. I'm going to read the whole thing to you and I'll put a little portion up there. It says this. There was a master of a house applied to the vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine precedent and a tower and leased it to some tenants. And he went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and they beat one. They killed another. They stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same. Finally, he sent his own son. And he sent them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, they killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting the Old Testament again. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people that produce its fruit. 
The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. For me, this is the most clear parable that we have that really speaks about who Jesus was, his mission, and what he came to do. Do you notice what he thinks? The son's death brings judgment, verse 21, the, the, verse 41. It brings vindication for, for the son, verse 42. And verse 43, the kingdom comes with the death of the servant. And I, I find this incredibly encouraging as I, I've been reflecting about this week because it, it helps me in terms of my life. And it should help you in terms of your life. That actually we have a responsibility to speak of the good news of the kingdom to those that are around us. And uh, sometimes the message is not well received. They didn't like the message that preached, Jesus preached. In fact, they didn't like it so much that they killed him. And so perhaps you and I, as we learn to preach good news through our lives and live out the good news, let us not become disguised when it doesn't always receive a welcome in people's hearts. Sometimes it does. What Jesus says, and this is the parable that I give to you, the kingdom of God is like a man with seed, and he sows the seed. And some of it falls in different places, and it produces a different harvest. You don't worry about the harvest, you worry about sowing the seed. Amen? And so for you and I, as we live our lives, as we try and think about what Jesus came to do for us, let's never be discouraged. Let's lift up each other's arms, encourage as we live this life, as we do what we can do, as we sow seed, as we speak of the good news of Jesus, the promise is that at the end, it will bear a harvest, 30, 60, and 100 folds. But let us continue to reflect over the weeks that are yet on this amazing hope that we have. The Old Testament hints at it, the New Testament is clear about it. And in the person of Jesus, all of us know this incredible power.